Our Father, as we come to the text of the New Testament tonight and begin to look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that Your Holy Spirit, who has been given to us through His ascension and His session, that, that, that great teacher of all teachers would open our hearts to what You would have us learn of Your Son. For we ask it through His name. Amen. Tonight we're going to begin... Um, part five of this series, which is where I wanted to be two months ago, but got waylaid. Um, but I don't think it was wasted time because you'll see why when we get into the life of Christ that uh, you can't just walk into the life of Christ without Old Testament backgrounds. Um, one of the things that I want to emphasize as we go into part five is we're going to switch the, the methodology a little bit. Um, just to review the structure of what we've been doing, um, as we've gone through these events, we have looked at a sequence of what we'll call the key events in Scripture. Um, these are the events, they're key simply because if you look at where speeches are made, great addresses are given in the Bible, and you take a pad of paper and you write down, and do this investigation yourself, you, Joshua's speeches, Stephen's speech, um, Paul's address to Athens, you write down the events that these guys mention and you come up with this list. So this is not some arbitrary set. It's, it's one that you can build up yourself if you, if you just go through the way these men, when they spoke of history, that what they emphasized. Um, but what we've been doing is we've been looking at each one of these events and linking them to doctrines because it's been my contention over the years, uh, both I've seen this in my personal experience as well as just trying to go into the study itself, that knowledge of the events feed your imagination with the content it needs to think its way through these truths. Um, when we talk about God and man and nature, I don't know how many times I've fallen back on visualizing Genesis 2 and God creating man. I mean, I may be reading some, something about um, some paleontological find about the bones of man or something. But to get my head screwed on, what I always find myself doing is coming back to visualizing where, which events pick up these doctrines. In this case, we learn a lot about the doctrine of man from creation. We also learn a lot about the doctrine of man from the Noahic covenant and the nature of God and the nature of nature and so on. So, our methodology for four years, um, three years, has been to point out an event and then we study the doctrine associated with that event. Um, we've come through the creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant, and then we notice that the doctrines that are emphasized in the New Testament, such as the doctrine of election, justification, and faith, uh, if you look at where in the New Testament, when, when this is introduced in the New Testament, um, you'll see that it's introduced 
uh, as a um, as a description of something that went on in the Old Testament. Let's see if I can get this straightened out. Oh well. Um, and so the call of Abraham is used by Paul in Romans 4. That's why we associate that doctrine, election, justification, and faith with the call of Abraham. It's not arbitrary. It's the way the Holy Spirit has structured the Scripture. So when we're talking about election, it's always helped me to think about God calling Abraham out from Ur. That's election. That's calling. Nothing controversially, God called him out of that because God had a plan for Abraham that he did not have for anybody else. It was a unique plan. So, we did that with election, we did it judgment salvation, with, with the exodus, the blood atonement, and so on. So, we have looked at every one of these events and we've looked at them with the eye toward seeing the doctrine associated with the events. And then, we have also defended the literalness of these events. These are not some myth that men created. They're not sweet little Sunday school stories that, along with a fairy godmother or something. These are as much history as anything you study in school. In fact, they're more important than anything you study in school. That's why they're not taught in school. The fact of the matter is that sacred history is the framework within which God builds everything else. These are the building blocks. And we started with the call of Abraham calling, talking about the kingdom. We said that God is building His kingdom. And the kingdom of God takes on characteristics. It takes on content. So we know what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God. Are we talking about a psychological experience in the inside of man? Or are we talking about that plus an external, environmental, physical thing called the kingdom of God? And obviously, the kingdom, as it goes on through the Old Testament, is not just an inner, private, psychological experience. It's an objective, historical, society-wide, geophysically-based thing. And we talked about later in the Old Testament, we talked about the king's discipline. The fact of the matter is that the king has a certain character and he's going to insist that that character be characterized in his kingdom. He wants a kingdom, but he wants a kingdom of a certain kind. So, he disciplines in order to bring about that character. Well, when we come now, as I say in the introduction, when we come now to the Lord Jesus Christ, now we're talking about the visit of the king. Now the king comes to the place that has been prepared. And the question now is, although we will have doctrines associated with four things now, we're going to study four events, micro-events, they're, they're momentous events, but I mean, they're events in the life of Christ, just as all these are events in the history of Israel. In the history of Jesus, here are the four events. Number one, his birth. Number two, his life. Number three, his death. And number four, his resurrection. Those are the four things we're going to deal with. And we're going to look at doctrines associated with those four, just like we have here. The different methodology, however, is going to be a slight new twist. This time, we're going to look at Jesus' life 
for what it reveals about the observers of Jesus. Now before, what we're looking at is, what is God speaking through the event? Well, God's speaking through the event in Jesus' time too, but here God is, is revealing certain truths. He wants us to um, grasp, so he's revealing it historically. But when we come now to the Lord Jesus Christ, God is not only revealing truths in his life, but he's revealing the hearts of men by their response to Jesus. So I want to start tonight by turning to Mark chapter 8. Um, and so we're going to watch and we're going to, we're going to deal with the response to the king. That's why I've entitled part 5, The Confrontation with the King. Because the, the Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the most pure form of revelation man has ever seen. You could argue, well, how can you say that? I mean, at Mount Sinai, they heard God speaking. From you know, It was a very dramatic thing. But the contention of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ's revelation, the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, is the Father's final word to the human race. From this point on in history, there's, there's no more added truths. When Christ gets done and he rises from the dead, there are no more truths in the sense that man uh, needs to know more in order to be prepared for something else. Man has had enough to be prepared. Now the issue is, what are men doing with the revelation they have received? So it becomes critical now in part five that we're not just looking at these events, but we're also looking at what men do in response to these events. So we're going to deal with what do men do with the birth of Jesus Christ? Uh, it's going to deal with the issue of the hypostatic union, the God-man nature of Christ, what the p people down through church history have done with this, how they mutilated it, they perverted it, why the guys that knock on your doorbells are just repeating the same old heresies of, of the second and third centuries. Jehovah's Witnesses are nothing more than the, the latter-day Armenians, uh, Arians rather. Um, so you'll, you'll see when you get back into church history that what we call the cults are nothing more than regurgitations of stuff that has gone on and on and on. Nothing new under the sun, same old idea, and the answers to it, the same answer the church gave two, in 200 or 300 A.D. Nothing new, no new homework needed. It's just the same old heresy with the same old answer. So, but it has to do with a perverted response to the truths of the birth of Christ. Uh, when we get into uh, the atonement, the death of Christ, we have all kinds of liberal enactments of why did Jesus die on the cross? And they're all insufficient explanations of why Jesus died on the cross. And there's a reason and a motive behind those, and that is they're trying to avert um, confrontation with the king. They want to turn aside and not want to see what he really did on the cross. So, so forth. So that's why this is entitled The Confrontation of the King. And I want to start with Mark chapter 8. And um, at this point in the Gospels, um, Jesus has got... If you diagram all four Gospels... You come up with something like this, that they begin not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. 
there's a period early on in the Gospels where John the Baptist introduces Christ. Nobody who has been with us on Thursday night should, under, should have a problem with that because you all know if John the Baptist is a prophet, what was one of the functions of the prophet in the Old Testament? He made the king. He was there to announce the king. So, there's no mystery. Four Gospels just start the same way. The Old Testament, there's nothing new about this. This is the Old Testament motif that the prophet comes first and then the king. I mean, Satan knows that. Who comes first? False prophet. And what does he introduce? The Antichrist. I mean, Satan follows the same protocol. Everybody has to have their media person. And John the Baptist is, as it were, the Holy Spirit's media person for introducing Jesus Christ. Then you will have, go through the Gospels and Christ uh, begins uh, to gain popularity. He begins to evangelize and there's a response to this man. And then something happens. It's a truncation that occurs. Now there is engendered a reaction, a vicious, concerted, negative attack against the person of Christ. Very interesting to observe. It's also interesting to observe that once this happens in the life of Christ, Jesus shifts gears in how he teaches. It's at this point when he begins to use parables. He begins to code his teaching. He begins to make it a secret thing. He begins to pull back. And then he begins to minister to the disciples. And usually the second half of the Gospels are all directed not at the public, but they are directed at the private group of people who have responded correctly to the king. Now they, and they alone, will be blessed with the insights. These insights will not be given out on the public. This is casting pearl before swine. And so the truths in the other half, of the second half of the Gospels are reserved for those who have believed, those who have received the king in their heart. And then, of course, is the death of Christ and the resurrection. This event, halfway point through the Gospels, is the beginning of the road to the crucifixion. At this point, up to this point, you could say it was theoretically possible for him to gain the crown. But at that point in the ministry, it becomes increasingly obvious the king is not going to be accepted on the king's terms. The people demand a king do certain things for them. And they don't see Jesus doing those things for them. The Jesus concept of the kingship doesn't fit the public's concept of kingship. And they resent this. And so now they begin counter-arguments. It's at this point that Matthew, Mark 8 happens. So at, in the Gospel of Mark, we're right about that point now. So if you'll start with verse 1, We'll skim down through this, this point in the Gospels. And we're not going to do a Bible study on, on this section. We're just skimming it to get to a, to a section. He, um, he is a series of witnessing here. And he's talking about um, the feeding. of the, the people have come, they're hungry. The disciples in verse 4. Where will anybody be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread here in a desolate place? And he said, how many loaves do you have? Seven. He directed the multitude to sit down on the ground, taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks. He broke them. He started giving the disciples to serve them, and they served them to the multitude. He also had a few small fish. After he blessed them, he ordered them to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. By the way, notice Jesus was not a vegetarian, please. 
And about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Okay, now, you notice there's, there's a little fine point in the text here. Um, this is one of the neat things when you look at some of the details of this. In, in verse 6, he gave thanks, he broke them. And then it says, after he broke them, he started giving them to his disciples. Meaning that he was giving them to his disciples over a prolonged period of time. He, was, he began to give them. See, it doesn't say he gave them to the disciples. He started the process. And the miracle was that they come by for more and he'd keep giving them more. Keep giving them more. This little verse and this little verb tense shows you a little bit about the miracle. And those are one of the neat things when you get into the text and you can really see uh, some of these events are just mind-blowing when you, when you really get into the details of the text. But tonight we want to proceed on to what happened. Verse 10. He immediately entered the boat with the disciples and they came to a particular district. And the Pharisees came out. Now here's the negative group. These people, the Pharisees, were a combination of theologian and lawyer. And it's not an insult, really, to the legal profession today to say, because, because there are many fine people in the legal profession, but as a profession, the profession of law, in the sense of practicing, practicing court law, has become very, very parallel in our time to thinking of the Pharisees. The emphasis in, in argumentation in law today is technique. It's, it's spins on a technique, a small point of the law. And increasingly you find a departure from the common sense, big ethic. I mean, there were good Nazi lawyers in 1936 for Adolf Hitler who could argue very precisely, very technically, that everything that the Fuhrer did was correct. Why? Because in 1933, what did they do? He got everybody to, to give him an exemption to the whole constitution of Germany. So by definition, everything that the Fuhrer did was correct. Legally, it's correct. No problem. But we know ethically it was wrong because the ethic is, should be the ground of the law. And one of the classic instances that shows you the pharisaical way of thinking in the parallel today is that incident, you remember when Jesus was in the fields on the Sabbath day with his disciples? and he was flicking the grain, and they were eating it. Remember that? And what did the Pharisees say? You violated section 6.321 of the sabbatical law. Now just back off a minute and think of the stupidity of that, that incident. Who is it that they're accusing of breaking the sabbatical law? The guy who gave it. Now let's think about that for a minute. Here these Pharisees have all the legal argumentation down to the third decimal place. And they're using it against the guy that gave them the law. Now this gets back to something that's very important. When you interpret law, you must interpret it according to a principle. And the principle is, what was the intent of the one who wrote the law? Not what you think the intent was, or not how you think you're going to apply it to a modern case. The issue is, what was the intent of the author of that particular law? 
And here Jesus was, who obviously, by allowing his disciples to flick grain, is authenticating the fact that whatever he had said about work on the Sabbath day, that wasn't work. So, by authorizing a behavior on the part of his disciples, he was exegeting the sabbatical legislation right there. And that the depth of the perversion is shown in the fact that the Pharisees have a very legally clean logic that appears to conflict with Jesus. So, that's the sort of thing that you encounter in the pages of the New Testament. That's the sort of thing that's being hammered out today. This is why, in my opinion, one of the most profound discussions that we have had in this country for the last 20, 30 years was something that most people uh, had passed over. And that was when, I think it was Ronald Reagan nominated Bork for the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't know whether you remember when that, the hearings were, with the Bork hearings. But the, the issue was, I mean, the Senate... Judiciary Committee just pounced on Richard Bork. I mean, I, the Biden over here in Delaware and Kennedy from Massachusetts, they just went after Bork. And I always have to laugh at that. I hear Kennedy, the C student in law school, telling a professor of law how to interpret the law. That was a joke. But the point was that here, Professor Bork was sitting there getting all his flack for his position on the law. I mean, these guys were incensed that Reagan had dared to nominate this person, Bork. Well, what was it they were saying? They were saying that if Bork got to be Supreme Court Justice, he would undo the key court decisions that the Supreme Court had done, including 1964, the civil rights issue. And they were thereby painting Bork as a white supremacist, a guy that was against the black race and so forth and this and that. Nothing of the sort. Here's the issue. This is what they're afraid of. Bork believed that a judge cannot make legislation surreptitiously. Bork argued that all he could do as a judge is operate within the constraints of the law that he has been given by the authors of the law. And in the Supreme Court, what is the law that the Supreme Court deals with? It's the United States Constitution. Therefore, Bork argued, if I can't deduce a principle that fits this case out of the corpus of the Constitution, I can't judge on it. I throw the case out. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to pass judgment. If it's not covered by the Constitution, not part of this court. Well, what infuriated them was that in 1964, when that... And I'm not arguing against the intent of the civil rights legislation. It was needed. Believe me, I walked through the South. I saw the black-only bathrooms. What an insult. And um, there was something needed. But the way they solved the problem, because of the liberal confusion of law, they made that, that, that Supreme Court decision was based on, on sociology, what people thought about race. It wasn't based on what the Constitution said. So... Bork was a, what they call a strict interpreter of the Constitution. The other guys were loose in interpreters of the Constitution. And they knew very well, if you let Bork get into the court, that's what he's going to do. What's he going to do? He's going to start shredding the, the crappy structure that we built up with these facetious interpretations of the Constitution. He's progressively going to dismantle things. And if you built your house 
you know, vast amounts of other secondary and tertiary le legislation and court cases have all been built on this basis, and Bork comes along and does this, what happens to the whole law structure that's been built up? I mean, it topples. It's revolutionary. That's why they went after Bork. They were smart men. Biden and Kennedy aren't stupid. They realized the implications of Bork. Bork was a profound threat, a profound threat to this, because he stood for a correction in the direction of the interpretation of law. Well, at this point, the Pharisees are doing the same thing. Now, here they are. They are to be society's experts. These are the Jewish experts of what the Torah really meant. And when they argue Jesus, verse 11, who are they arguing with? You keep that in mind. Keep, keep, you've got to visualize this confrontation because we're going to get to a verse in a few, few minutes here. We'll get to a verse. Uh, to get the impact of that verse, you've got to see what's happening. You've got to see the scene here. Here are these guys with their PhDs in theology. I mean, they were experts on the Torah. They were experts on the Mishnah. They knew the Talmud. They know the text of the Old Testament. Most of these guys could memorize the Old Testament. Put us to shame. They began to argue with him, and they began seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And in my translation, it says, and sighing deeply in his spirit, meaning Jesus is pretty disgusted at this point. Now, what are these creeps thinking now? Why does this generation seek for a sign? I said no sign is going to be given to this generation. You see, he's getting, these are one of those passages. This is one of those passages in the New Testament where you can see something about Jesus' personality. Now, something else we'll note when you get on in his life. It's been observed by scholars who have had enough sense to really pay attention to the kind of personality the Lord Jesus had. That almost to a man or woman, they, they will argue that Jesus, for all the pictures you get of this meek and mild person, was extremely self-confident. To the point that if he wasn't who he claimed to be, he is one of the most arrogant people who has ever walked this planet. Because he had the audacity to say, because I said it, it's true. Now, who of us would dare claim that we are self-authenticating? But Jesus argued that he was self-authenticating, that because I say it, it is true. So then he leaves them, and he embarked and went to the other side. And they had not forgotten, they had forgotten to take bread, did not have more than one loaf in the, on the boat with them. I must have been there. <laughs> That's what I would have done. And he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So he, see, the, the Mark is thinking back on this, because he wasn't there when this was going on. He's getting this through Peter, probably. And the, the, in verse 11 and 12, the emphasis is on what the Pharisees are doing. It's a big argument been raging. Jesus gets in a boat, and verse, 14, verse 15, he keeps on talking about the argument. But then Mark slips in verse 14 to let us know that while this argument's going on, and Jesus is carrying on about the discussion, the guys forgot the food. So now we have a juxtaposition of a very serious theological argument going on with somebody that forgot the lunch. Watch how the two come together. And he began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. Are they listening to the discussion? No, they're worried about who left the lunch behind. So now it becomes an issue in the boat. 
And Jesus, aware of this, said, Why do you keep discussing that you have no bread? Do you not yet see and understand? Now here's where Jesus, in the marvelous providence of God, he takes a forgotten lunch and he's going to clobber them with it to let them see that they're basically doing the same thing the Pharisees would just got through doing. Look how he does it. He says, why do you discuss it if you have no food? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Look at the nouns in those questions. What do you see? What parts of the body? See, understand, or well, verbs. You see the eyes. You understand the mind. You have a hardened heart. Then he quotes the Old Testament text. Look what he's done. The, the fact that he's talking about seeing and understanding a hardening heart Jesus is already thinking about an Old Testament passage. And then he quotes it here. Who wrote the passage? It, 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 for, even if you didn't have a, a reference, even if you didn't have um, uh, a cheat sheet, <laughs> um, a reference to the Old Testament text, you know that language. It, it's Old Testament prophets. Okay? Well, what were the Old Testament prophets arguing about? See, here's where, here's where we have to start using what we've learned about the Old Testament so we can appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's doing here. When the prophets wrote, they were writing down this period. The kingdoms were in decline, right? What was going on in the kingdom in Israel when it was declining? Were these people really learning the Word of God? Kings were all sitting there, every 24 hours they were in the Torah? They couldn't even find the Torah. They'd been lost. They had false prophets. What was Ahab doing? Married to the daughter of, uh, you know, some Canaanite priest. I mean, this is real super stuff going on in the Old Testament. And it was at that point that God was going to lower the boom on the nation. And the accusation, remember what the prophet was? He acted as a prosecutor. What did he do? He brought God's case for violation of the covenant to the people. And in these, in this, when this having eyes do not hear it, hears. what they're saying is that when you turn from rebel against God, it has a self-destructive effect. Namely, it blinds you, it deafens you, and it hardens your heart. And the prophets warned the nation that at this point in time, they were headed to what was the next event? in the Old Testament. Exile. Okay, that's the Old Testament background. Now, come to the New Testament. What is Jesus now saying? By quoting that Old Testament verse, what's it a signal? You're sitting there, you listen to him say this. You know enough about your Old Testament now to know that that's a citation at a point when the nation Israel was turning away from Jehovah and in danger of Exile. What is the nation in Jesus' day in danger of if they reject Christ? What happened to the Jews in 70 A.D.? Exile. History repeating itself. So here Jesus Christ is operating completely in the Old Testament frame of reference. Nothing new here under the sun. This is exactly the same thing, same hymn, second verse. That's all it is. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, don't you hear? And you don't remember? 
But who's he applying it to in verses 18 and 19? Is he applying it to the Pharisees or is he applying it to the guys that forgot the lunch? He's, for, he's applying it to the disciples. And this is a warning. This is a warning. He said, don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. And by the way, verses 19 and 20, I put in the text for the skeptics who say there were two different conflicting accounts of Jesus' feeding. Well, he, Jesus didn't know there were two conflicting accounts. He did both of them, and he's talking about both of them here. It's just some idiot that can't read that there are two events in the Scriptures. And he was saying, don't you yet understand? Now, what, notice how he applies the text. The verb that he uses, do you not yet understand, is the same verb of the prophetic text of the Old Testament. The three verses, that, uh, having eyes you don't hear, is an attack on their blindness, having ears that hear you don't hear, but also if you look at the original text in the Old Testament, it's also talking about a hardening heart that does not understand. So here's how Jesus was so saturated in the Scriptures. He had such perfect understanding of it that he could think around, through, and into an event like a forgotten lunch. I mean, look at what triggered this discourse in the boat. The guys arguing about a lunch. But look how the Lord could take that simple little discussion about a lunch and, and relate it to the, to the whole situation of history of the nation of Israel. So, so, so he says, don't you yet understand, verse 21. Don't you guys get it yet? What is he after? the same thing Isaiah was. Do you see who God is in this covenant relationship and are you going to respond to him? Do you get it? They came to Bethesda and they brought a blind man to him. He touched him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes, laying his hand upon him. Do you see anything? I see men. I see them like trees. The doctor could comment about verse 24. Verse 25, he laid his hands on a second time and he sent him home saying, don't enter the village. Why do you suppose that event happened in the providence of God, the blind man, just happened to be right after the other discussion that went on? What is it a picture of? What was the accusation in the boat? You guys can't see. And by going out and literally turking to a literally blind person and saying, these guys, you know, hey, this guy gives sight. What, if they had caught the point, they ought to have turned to the Lord and said, open my eyes. Can you open my spiritual eyes and my heart like you just opened this guy's eyes? He did it. You know, he did it by stages too. So it was a graphic illustration. So now in verse 27, 28, now he whops it to him. Now he challenges him. He says, He went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea. And on the way, he began the conversation again. So he starts in drilling them again. He says, uh, who do people say I am? And they give various opinions. And you can have all the opinions. He was John, he was Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he said, but who do you say I am? Can you imagine this conversation? What is, the, what is Jesus getting at? Why does he keep driving home this point? Because they've got to perceive who Jesus is or they can't be his disciples. It does no good to say, I'm going to go out and love the world. 
I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm this and that, and I'm going to obey the Lord, and blah, blah, blah. You notice Jesus doesn't start with all that. He says, do you see who I am? Get a picture of who I am. Then we'll discuss all the other stuff. But you don't start with the other stuff. You start with who is Jesus Christ. Because isn't it true, and, and think of the situation from the lost lunch to the Pharisees. What was the issue behind all that? I mean, if these guys had realized who Jesus was, you know, I mean, how many guys could be in the boat? Not 4,000. So all they, if they had perceived who he was and it really clicked, they could have said, well, you know, we're, we're out of food. We're out here in the water, got nothing to eat. But this is the guy who, who fed 5,000, he fed 4,000. I mean, you know, this is a cinch. This is all, we could all fit at one table here. So why can't he feed us? Well, it was a failure to see and appreciate who was with him. And that's our problem because we, we forget. Notice the word remember. Don't you remember? And we see it every once in a while. You know, you get in church and we see it. We hear it and it clicks with us for two and a half hours or something. And then we forget and, and we fall back into a perceptive problem. So that's one of the things we want to look at in the life of Christ is to see how insidious our flesh is. Forgetting who Jesus Christ is. We've got to be reminded and reminded and reminded and reminded. And you know what does the reminding? The teaching of the Word of God. Not sweet stories. Not all kinds of hoopla. Not programs on how to grow churches. It's the Word of God. That's where you find out who Jesus is. And it doesn't promise to be a lot of people. See, the church doesn't necessarily grow numerically when the Word of God is taught. How many did Jesus wind up having, by the way, enthusiastic congregation at the foot of the cross? You count how many people were there? Great, great testimony to his church growth movement, wasn't it? So the point was that it's, it's the issue of who Christ is. That's the issue. All the other issues are peripheral to that. So we want to turn to another passage, John chapter 3. So if you turn ahead, now we want to get into the implications of this because what we're doing tonight is just introducing an approach that we want to use four times. We're going to use this on four of those events, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. But what I want to do is, is get you aimed right. And so in John 3... The famous Nicodemus discourse. I was talking to a friend of mine when I was speaking recently in Connecticut, and uh, he spent about, oh, I guess um, six or seven weeks, he's teaching uh, from the original Greek text um, this passage, and he's spending a lot of time on research. And he was telling me that what struck him in this pass that he's going through here. And when we get to verse 7, and that phrase when Jesus talk, turns to Nicodemus and he says, don't marvel that I said you must be born again. He says, if you do a real careful word analysis of that verb, marvel, that it's the, it's the, um, it carries a connotation of why are you so amazed at this? 
it, it's condemnatory. It's a condemning kind of thing. He said, why are you amazed when you shouldn't be? That's the thrust of this thing. You shouldn't be marveling at this. Nicodemus knew his Old Testament. And Jesus is rebuking him. He said, why, why are you marveling at this? You should understand this is biblical thought I'm talking about here. The wind blows where it's wished and so on. What Jesus is trying to say, it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that does these things. And Nicodemus is kind of wandering around. But the conclusion, verse 16, which we all know, and that's one of the things I remember when we had the play here. Um, who was the young fellow who played John the Apostle? Jacob. Yeah. Um, I was talking to him after the play, and all the, they were all around here in their costumes. And I said, you know, it's interesting that, that uh, Dennis picked a young boy to play John. Because John lived until about 90-some-odd uh, A.D., so he was either he was a very old man or he was younger when Jesus ministered. And the thinking is that he was very young. And one of the things uh, a teenager is, is usually impressed with is they, teenagers tend to have idols and they'll talk to them, they'll dress like them and so on. And one of the interesting things about the way John writes is that in this particular narrative of John 3, try to find out where Jesus stops talking and John's commentary on what on his speech begins. And scholars have tried and tried and tried. It's almost impossible. And I, I don't know where it is. I'd hate to be pinned down at exactly where it happens. But Jesus starts off the chapter talking. By the time you get down to the end, it's a Johannine commentary on what he said. So it appears that John writes very much like Jesus probably sounded. And who was, the, who was the, of all the disciples closest to Jesus? It was John the Apostle. So, in John 3.16, we have the verse that everyone knows, but then look what happens in verse 17, 18, and 19 that follow on to that verse. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, at least at the first advent he didn't, but that the world through him should be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, past tense. He who has not believed has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, how can that be? Why is the person judged already because they have not received Christ? And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as being wrought in God. The argument John uses, and he does it in the, his first epistle, he does it several other places, is that if the light turns on in the room, and you're still groping around, and I'm still groping around, is the problem with the light or is the problem with us? The problem is with the people who are still groping around. The problem isn't the light. So this is what we're trying to emphasize now with this life of Christ. The problem isn't that God's revelation isn't clear enough. If God only wrote a Bible today, you know, he's supposed to write a new Bible every century to satisfy the contemporaries. 
the fact of the matter is that the revelation is absolutely clear. What people do with the revelation shows nothing about the revelation. It shows something about the people looking at the revelation. Men are condemned, John says, by their response to Jesus. Because the, the Jesus is the light of the world. And if you can't see that, the problem isn't with the light of the world. The problem is with you. See, this is a, a, a 180 degrees opposite. You know, you often hear this argument non-Christians make, and I'm sure people maybe in your family have made it toward you if you're a believer. Well, poor Mary so-and-so. She, she just is a weak person, and, you know, weak people have to believe in God. You've all heard that kind of argument. Well, let's turn this around 180 and watch what it sounds like if we reverse it. Well, poor Joe, he doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we understand why, because he's a sinner fleeing from the wrath of God and he wants to be safe, feel safe. Of course you don't want to believe in Christ. I understand that, because if I were in your shoes, I would be fearful. And I don't want to be fearful, so I'll manufacture an imaginary world in which I can be safe, safe for sin. So, two can play the psychology game. And in the Gospel of John, it is reversed. And in this point is that those who do not believe reveal themselves, not Jesus. They reveal something about themselves, not something about Christ. So that's the emphasis on the New Testament. We're going we're to try to follow that um, motif, that men's response to Christ is a self-condemning response. We do not infer because X number of people disbelieve that somehow God did a messy job revealing himself. Rather, what we conclude when X number of people disbelieve is that X number of people have a problem. That's what we conclude. Now you see, here's an example I warned you about three years ago when we started this class. Be careful that you don't buy into a question. How many times last week did you beat your wife kind of thing? Can't answer it any other way than condemn yourself because you bought into the question. And we warned you about the, pre, the role of a worldview and presuppositions. Now, let's watch what happens here. We have a fact. The fact is that... people disbelieve because the revelation's not clear. I mean, you've got to have 15 and a half arguments to prove God's existence. I, you know, I've got to have some intellectual content here. That's not enough to just simply believe the Scriptures. Whereas, if we think biblically, we'll say, well, of course X number of people believe, don't believe. And it's, it's a miracle that the number isn't larger because we're all sinners. We're all fleeing from the wrath of He who is on the throne. We all have a deep and profound motive in our hearts to create an imaginary world safe for sin. So, of course, we're going to feign, feign unbelief. So now we have this one event, two different interpretations of the event. So you watch this. Because when you get in a classroom situation or you get in a book situation, you're watching the media or something, you watch the spin that's put on a fact, the spin that's put on an event. Learn to discern. And that's one of the things we want to see in, in the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. Okay, if you t turn the notes um, to page 4 and 5, we're going to um, sort of skim over this following the notes. 
pretty much. Um, lot, most of this is um, not new to you because we've gone through this in the Old Testament uh, series. If you uh, will turn, please, in one more verse in the New Testament to Galatians chapter 4. We do want to remind ourselves of this uh, timing. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world at a certain point in time. It was not an accident. Jesus was perfectly timed. His entry into the world had been planned for eternity past. God knew about Greeks. He, he ordained history to flow in a certain direction. He, he said, Daniel, there's going to be four kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Media Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. In the middle of that Roman Empire, I'm going to send my son in. That's going to be the time. Now, Galatians 4.4 says why that happened that way. Galatians 4.4 is a timer. Galatians 4.4 is a, a peak at the plan of God and why He chose the moment of history that He chose when the Lord Jesus came in. God says, when the fullness of the time came, He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, and so forth and so on. Now, if you look in the context of this passage, you notice verse 1, verse 2 is talking about you weren't children, and then uh, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything, he's under the guardians and managers. And then he says that, verse 3, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the element things of the world, or the stoichia. We studied that in Colossians 2 one night, back weeks ago. The, the fundamental uh, building blocks of the universe that are taken by unbelief, like Adam, fire, water, that kind of thing. And then he say, um, verse 8, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things, stoichia, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So the picture is that all of the human race was enslaved and yet, something was being taught. It was a, uh, if we can say this, uh, you know, teachers talk about pedagogy and we, we set, design lesson plans, those of you who teach, and there's a pedagogical intent behind the construction of lessons. You put lesson three after lesson two, homeschoolers, you know, you do this lesson, then you do them in sequence because there's a pedagogical sequence for learning. Well, here's a biblical philosophy of history. History is pedagogical. Under God, the sequence of historical events itself is pedagogical. And this is why Paul says, in the fullness of time, meaning that certain things happened in history to teach, 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 to ready the human race for the entry of the Son of God. That if Christ had come at any other moment in history, it would have been out of sequence. So, it was a moment. Now, what we want to do in the remaining minutes tonight is review quick, quickly what was it to the historical sequence prior to Jesus that led up and prepared men for the moment. And so, I divide it on page four. You follow the text there, you'll see the historical preparation of the pagan world. And then if you skip over to page seven... Uh, you'll see the historical preparation of the Jewish world. So I'm going to divide the remaining time in two parts. We're going to show quickly how...
the pagan world was prepared for the arrival of the Son of God and then how the Jewish world was prepared for the arrival of the Son of God. The pagan, we, we've gone through this, we've said that the, uh, the civilization begun by Noah upon the reconstructed planet after the flood departed from the then known word of God. God let Noah's civilization become paganized. The once simple monotheistic worship of El Elyon gave way to various idolatries. And so you come down to the end of that paragraph. The pagan world spawned various mythologies and many idols. Constellations, stars were worshipped. Fear of these idols' non-existent powers was a confession of man's physical limitations over against inevitable sickness, death, and the various evils in nature. In other words, men became acutely aware of their physical limitations prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Societies, entire societies had become fearful, realizing that they had no power over these things. They were powerless to deal with these. There had to be that awareness and it had to be emphasized again and again through disaster, through heartache, through apostasy, through idolatry, whatever it was, to get through first, before Christ, that we are physically limited and we are therefore dependent creatures. Then we said, and, and remember the Old Testament, we said in 600 uh, B.C., in that, in that era of the exile, you had a, a change. The pagan world was changed. It became more rational. You had the four kingdoms. And that's why on page five of the notes, I, I have this great quote by F.E. Peters. F.E. Peters is considered by Greek scholars to be one of the experts in, in Hellenic thought. And I think it's very important we, we look at this quote. This is the third of the four kingdoms of Daniel. The rationalistic premise operative in much of Greek thought and life was at root the belief, and here you want to underline it, watch, this is F.E. Peters talking now, the, the guy who's a specialist in this culture. Underlying it was the belief that unaided human reason was an adequate instrument for both understanding and action. Very few Greeks denied the existence of the gods, what the rationalist premise did suggest was that the operation of these gods was unnecessary for acquisition of either truth by the intellect or good by the will. That's autonomous man. Van Til. Here, I put him in because I want you to see, here's a guy who's taking the fact of Greek culture and interpreting it biblically. Don't just take raw facts, but interpret them biblically. And here's a guy who's interpreting it biblically. He's saying it's taken for granted that the Greeks may fairly be compared to children who began to wander about, wonder about the things around them. But, that's what you usually get in the textbook. But notice the but. Watch this. Now here Van Til is going to correct wrong thinking. But, this comparison would be fair only if the pagan notion of history were true. The comparison, look at the word, presupposes. The comparison presupposes the human race was the first time emerging into self-consciousness in the person of the Greeks. It takes for granted that the human race had never been in close contact with a God who was closer to them than the universe. It takes for granted that physical facts would be known that, knowable first and then if God is to be known, he must be known later. See what Van Til is saying? He's exposing the root of pagan thought. And what I've tried to do, I was flying back from Denver today in the plane, I thought of a way of adding to this, this um, chart that I... Sh this is the one, of course, we always talk who has the evil problem. 
And what we're trying to, I'm trying to expose there is it's the other way around. It's the unbeliever that's got the evil problem. Well, they often accuse us of a knowing problem. And uh, I've got to get this on, on my computer so it's nice and neat. But let me explain something that happened here with the Greeks. And this had to happen before Christ came down because the Lord Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus, stop marveling at this stuff. Who has the real knowing problem? See, the unbeliever likes to think that we Christians are the ones that have the knowing problem. Well, how can you prove God? Say, this is the thing that you get thrown at all the time. What we're going to show is that unless Christianity is true, you can't know anything. And here's why. The Christian position is built on the Creator. The Creator has two things. He has His plan and He has His providence. Okay? Everybody clear on what the difference is? God has, from eternity past, a plan that includes every molecule and every action of every molecule in history for all time and for all space. So everything has a place in the plan of God. It is a perfectly rational plan. On the other hand, God shows us His plan as He unrolls it in history. That's called providence. Now, the plan of God is the basis for logic and reason in the Christian worldview. Our logic and our reasoning machine works only because God's plan is there first and rational. If God's plan wasn't there first and rational, the logic machine would never work. So the logic and reason of man is dependent upon the plan of God. Our experience and the facts and how they fit together, we encounter the experience and the facts under the providence of God. It's the providence of God that gives us experience. It's the providence of God that gives us the facts. So the facts and experience come out of the providence of God, just as man's reason and his logic come out of the plan of God. Now you come down to this poor guy. Here's Mr. Pagan. Now let's ask him what the basis of his reason and logic is and the basis of his experience and facts. Now you see we've got a little problem. Now we said the emperor has no clothes. Because here the pagan is with his finite reasoning. Finite reasoning. What do we mean finite reasoning? It's limited. What's he inevitably do every time he opens his mouth? He's making an absolute. Now isn't it herein is a wonder? A finite reasoner talking about absolutes. Every time he says ought, true, this, is, he's talking about absolutes. So how can you talk about absolutes if you're a finite reasoner? I can talk about absolutes as a finite reasoner because I know the Creator has a plan and the plan has absolutes in it. I've got a basis. The unbeliever doesn't have a basis. He's hanging in thin air here. Yak, 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 yak about reason and logic. Reason and logic, but he doesn't have any foundation for his reason and logic. Okay? Serious problem. You don't build a house without a foundation. Over here, he keeps talking about the facts that just happened. The experiences that just happened. They come out of the void. And underneath that, all he has is chance. So on the side of experience and reason, he has this great mystery called fate or chance, and things just happen that way. But here's now the final problem. Just as we said, the, the unbeliever has this problem with good and evil that it maintains itself forever. Look what he's got here. Now he's got a war going on between his left side and his right side. On his left side, he wants reason to hold so badly that he can make absolutes. On the right side, he gets facts and experiences that just jump about and happen by sheer chance. Now, you can't have both of these principles. They're at war with one another. His logic is at war with his facts. 
He can't get the two together. And that's always been the dilemma of philosophy. You can't make a sentence. You can't make a predicate. If you say, this, uh, this animal is a cow. Okay? That's, that's a predicative sentence. Now think of what I just said. This animal is a cow. Included in that sentence is the fact that I've classified, and I know exactly what the classification of all cows are. And that presupposes that I know every cow? No. But somehow, up here in my logic machine, I've got a set, a class distinction called cows. That's my logic. See? There's my finite reason going about making classification. But then, the predicate of the sentence, uh, the, the, the subject of the sentence, is this animal. This animal just happened to walk in front of me. How do I know that tomorrow another animal isn't going to walk in front of me and then it's going to blow away my classification scheme? Suppose this cow is at half between an elephant and a cow. Now what am I going to do to my classification scheme? It wipes out. So, and I can't tell that because I'm a finite experiencer. So my point in showing you all this is this is what had to happen in history before the Lord Jesus came down. Because if it hadn't, people could still say, well, there's another explanation for this. But you see, the fact is that the Greeks already caught on to this problem. Aristotle and Plato already knew about this thing. This is not something I dreamed up on the airplane. This is something that's been true since Aristotle's day. So, this was known. All this was known. Now we want to show you one more thing that way God prepared the Gentile world. And that's the last quote, and next time we'll get into the preparation of the Jewish world. Here is a picture in mythology of the city of Rome. It's a very important story, because in this story is depicted the character of what Rome stands for. Two boys, abandoned twins, set out to find a city. Romulus plowed a furrow as the first wall around the city with a trench and a moat and overturned earth as the wall. His brother, Remus, expressed his contempt for the wall and moat by leaping across it into the city, whereupon Romulus killed him at once, declaring, so perish all who ever cross my wall. Should be explanation point there. Rome thus began, first with two boys abandoned by their family, and second with a murder of a brother as its first sacrifice. The priority of the city to the family is emphatically set forth, but this is not all. Third, the first citizens were not members of a common family or a clan, but neighboring shepherds, outlaws, or stateless people. The city made them Romans, not ties of family or blood. Contrast that to Israel. What defined Israel? Families and blood. And what defined Rome? An artificial contrivance of political will. And so, the kingdoms, all this was tried. And that's why we conclude on page 6 that under Caesar Augustus, Roman organization reached unity and so under the zenith. But the point is that every possible solution was tried. And it was into a world in which all these solutions had already been tried that Christ stepped and entered this world in that fullness of time. We'll study a little bit more about that next time because we want to get the background it's necessary to get the background because the first doctrine we're going to deal with is how can Jesus Christ be God and man? And the responses that people use is they try to revert back to this reasoning. And that's what generates Arianism. That's what generates the cults and so forth. 
Father, we thank You for this time tonight. We thank You again for Your faithfulness in continuing to reveal Yourself down through history. Even when we as a human race have turned our backs and we have been in rejection of Your authority, of Your truths, nevertheless, because of Your grace, You have demonstrated again and again and again that You are the God of truth, You are the God of grace, and You are the One who controls all things after the counsel of Your will. It's in Christ's name we give you thanks. Amen. Carol said that Loey had a paper on... Maybe ten, 10 minutes or so. So um, if uh, there are any questions that you want me to field, I'll be glad to do that. Uh, if there aren't, we won't worry about it too much longer. Ah, Debbie, good. I'll tell you what, if it wasn't for Debbie, we wouldn't have a Q&A. <laughs> Well, uh, that's a that's a ripper of a question. Very good, well thought out question. Um, question is that obviously in the New Testament ends 400 years prior to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you got four centuries of silence. Now the question we want to reflect on is, well, why was there 400 years of silence? Is it because the people's hearts were hardened and therefore there was no prophetic material uh, willing and ready? to receive the word in order to transmit it? Or, in fact, had God simply said that uh, it's time to be quiet now? I've, I've spoken and this is, this is, my, um, this is the era. Um, the scriptures really don't, I don't think, um, at least I'm not aware of passages that would say uh, one way or the other. It's kind of an inference that God had accomplished his purposes um, by revealing what he had, he had partially brought Israel back together. Um, 
it, the, the nation is profoundly aware that they don't have speaking prophets. That's why that we, I quoted that thing out of Second Maccabees when they went to they, they knew they couldn't figure out where to put the um, remains of the uh, temple and so on. Um, so it was an awareness on the part of the nation. Uh, it's hard to believe that there wasn't at least one or two people that would have could have been used as prophets. Um, so I guess I kind of lean toward the fact that God had spoken all he was going to speak. He had made it clear. Certainly he didn't need to keep on speaking to make it anything clearer. Uh, and I think that it is a precedent. Remember that that partial restoration that we see because of what we know from Daniel, the, par, the restoration is sort of a new thing because the Bible... Uh, in its simplistic earlier view of prophecy, had Israel, exile, and then coming back from exile, and that was going to be the kingdom. And then you kind of have this time expansion and stretching that's go on. So that, that age in between the time of the exile and the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, that period of time is sort of something new, new to us, not new to God. Um, and I think it is an adumbration or a foreview of the present age of silence. And that God has spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he has sent His Holy Spirit uh, from the throne to earth. Um, he, he has preserved the New Testament text. I mean, what, what more is it there for Him to say? Because now the issue is, what are we going to do with what He's already spoken? That's the issue. And that's what men are judged for. And that's that John 3 passage tonight. Men are condemned because they haven't received what he's already said. I've, and, and, and people have written in the Protestant vein, of course in the Catholic vein, the Roman Catholic Church holds that it's not an age of silence, that in fact God still speaks through the chair of Peter's, uh, Peter the Pope. Um, and so you have the, the Pope office as a conduit if God needs to speak to the church. Uh, you'll also see Mormons believe in the restored church, meaning the prophetic line is active again through the Mormon church. And it's kind of typical that cults will argue that, that God still speaks. Uh, Islam is another religion that says that what God said in the Bible is, is incomplete and therefore God needs to continue to speak. And he did so through Allah, uh, through, through uh, Muhammad. So the Protestant writers have generally argued that for God now to speak, in addition to what he's already said in the New Testament, denigrates the New Testament. Because what it, in effect, implies is that the New Testament isn't sufficient by itself, that it needs continuing additions. And for that to happen, that itself lowers the authority of the New Testament. So, um, the whole inter-Advent age, is, it's a, it gets very complicated. Um, the question you asked about the age between the exile and the Lord Jesus is difficult. But then you get into the problem of after the Lord Jesus is rejected by the chosen nation, then you've got a new inter-advent age. Now the two, part, the two, the suffering Messiah and the glorious Messiah are split apart and we have this inter-advent age. Now, and that gets very complicated. And that's what we're in now. It's hard to see the connection uh, in a simple way with the Old Testament.
Any, anybody have anything else on, on um, this preparation for the Lord Jesus Christ? I think it would help if you remember as you study history and you, you're aware of, of the great figures of history is to always remember it's, it's helped me immeasurably understand the New Testament to remember that philosophy preceded the New Testament. Philosophy had already begun four, well, philosophy had already begun three centuries prior to the New Testament. So it's not true, it's not true that the New Testament doesn't conceive of the, quote, great philosophic problems. The New Testament comes after the great philosophic problems have already been laid out on the table. In fact, many professors of philosophy argue that Plato, uh, uh, in his day, the first great Greek philosopher, had already laid out all the great questions. And nobody else has added to the questions, they just argued about the answers. But the questions were all neatly laid out by Plato. And that helps because it, it tells you that you, if the New Testament says that it is sufficient unto every good work, the sufficiency of Scripture. So all the great questions are potentially answered in the Scriptures. You don't have to hunt outside of the Scriptures for these answers. The Scriptures are sufficient. There's some key tools here that we, pro- we evangelicals need to understand. The Scriptures are sufficient. The Scriptures are authoritative. And the Scriptures are clear. The perspicuity of the Scripture. Protestant principle there. doesn't mean there's not heavy, high, hard-to-understand sections. It means that in order to be saved and to lead a Christian life and to discern the will of God, the Scriptures are clear. So perspicuity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And if we would just remind, you know, if we could just keep that in mind, we'd be a lot more stable. I think. Okay, if there are no, any more questions, uh, we'll call it quits for tonight. And uh, two weeks from now, we'll meet again. <laughs>